You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. God, thank you uh, that you love us, that you came to rescue us, um, as we heard about this morning, that you, um, on Christmas we celebrate, that you have intervened into our world uh, for the purpose of loving us and rescuing us. Amen. All right, so this is the third in a three-part series on talking about uh, Christmas with your children. Um, obviously, really good time of year to engage your children on matters of faith, um, the topic we were assigned was that God keeps his promises. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do this in two parts. Um, don't worry. When I'm saying all this stuff, you think, how could I say these things to my children? That's where Emily comes in. I'm going to sort of come uh, at it from what we know to be true about God keeping his promises to us. And then Emily's going to sort of do the application of how you might engage your children on that issue. Um, God does, throughout the Old Testament make lots of promises to his people and to us by association. They're not always the promises that you hear about in every church. God doesn't promise us an easy life. He doesn't promise us a Mercedes. Um, he doesn't. He didn't uh, do all these things for our pleasure, um, but he made lots of significant, profound promises. And the one we're going to focus on today is that he promised to rescue us from the beginning. Um, I've given you all a handout uh, that has uh, it's three Roman numerals on it. Roman numeral one, God promises to rescue us. Roman numeral two, it says specific Messiah promises that Jesus fulfilled. It probably should be messianic, I guess. And then three will be when Emily talks, the application to your family. And there's definitely some overlap uh, between them. Um, as I'm talking about this, I want you to try to be thinking of two things. I want, you, I want to think about the specific promise Jesus made to rescue us um, and, and how that was fulfilled. And then sort of apologetically, just sort of the remarkable... Uh, truth that certain specific things uh, about Jesus were promised and predicted in the Old Testament, and then they came true thousands of years later. For a certain age child, high school child, I think that's compelling, the kind of apologetics a aspect of it. God first promised that he would rescue us at the very beginning. So we all know the fall. Um, Adam and Eve in the garden, everything is perfect. And from the moment of the fall on, everything was set sideways. Sin and death came into this world and messed everything up. And immediately, at the time that God describes in Genesis the fall, he, uh, he also describes that he's going to come in to rescue us from the fall. So if you look at Genesis 3, 14 through 15, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed, I think there's, there's other seats up here in the front, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Very specific prophecy from the very beginning that through the line of Eve, through man will come a son and that son will ultimately defeat the enemy, defeat Satan, defeat death. Um, if you know, and it's pretty in Genesis 4, you may recall, uh, Eve gets confused, right? And the very first child she has, she's like, hallelujah, this is it. 
here is the one, you know, who's going to who's going to defeat the enemy. And of course, it wasn't. There were many thousand years, so we had to wait. Um, so God goes about setting in motion this process whereby from Genesis in the fall until the birth of Jesus, that he has got a plan in place to rescue us. And he tells us about it. Originally in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, not suggesting you should talk about covenants with your children, um, but in Genesis 15, uh, 12 through 20, um, we see uh, the very uh, the, one of the earlier uh, examples of the covenant, the New Covenant with Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And then... Uh, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Take your offspring, I give this land for the river of Egypt to the great river and the river of Euphrates. This takes a little bit of explaining, but this is a this is an incredibly profound thing that God is doing here. Um, we see earlier the pieces refers to a sacrifice, and God is making a sacrifice. We know that the fire is God himself come down to speak to Abraham. And if we understand um, what that would have meant in the Old Testament, if we understand what an oath meant, when you were to walk through a sacrifice like that with the pieces set apart, what you were saying is, on my life, I swear to you that this will happen. And it would be something that you would promise you would make to God um, or, or to someone else. This is the total inverse. This, is, this, this would be shocking to anyone um, in the Old Testament time to hear this, that what God is saying here, he's making a promise at this point to Abraham, on my life, I will make this right. On my life, I will rescue your people finally and forever from sorrow, from sickness and death. And as we know, of course, in Jesus, it was on his life that he fulfilled that promise. So he, you know, he's not just saying, I will do it. He's saying, I'm going to have to die to make this happen. But he's telling Abraham this, you know, what, what, do, we, what do we think it is? Like 1200 B.C.? Like, you know, thousands of years before, excuse me, 13,000 B.C.? Thousands of years before Jesus would ever be born. He continues with Abraham. And we know the story of, and I won't read the whole thing, of Abraham and his son Isaac which can't be read as anything other than a foreshadowing of Jesus, of a promise of death taking the place for us. And you all know the story um, where Abraham is told to take his son Isaac, his only son, and to sacrifice him to the Lord. Um, and as they're walking up the hill, what does Abraham say? He says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. At the time, this seems a, it's a cruel story. It seemed, I mean, I'm sure Isaac had to have a lot of therapy afterwards. <laughs> But it's a clear foreshadowing of the promise that God has made that he is going to, through Jesus, through Christmas, through coming into the world, he's going to rescue his people, which then becomes our people. Um, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we think, was written in 627, 628 B.C. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We had the old covenant with Abraham, a new covenant, which is our covenant through Jesus with this house of Israel and the house of Judah. Um, 
if you look at two, some of the things I think that's just really fascinating when you look at when these things were written. Um, you know, Isaiah written in 750 to 700 BC, Micah 750 to 700 BC. Um, specific things that God said would be true of the Messiah, and every one of them was fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not going to read all of these because I want to give Emily plenty of time for her part, which is the bulk of the study. But we know that in Isaiah that it was predicted that he'd be born of a virgin. We know that it was predicted uh, in Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem. We know that it was predicted that he would start his uh, ministry, uh, that he would be a Nazarene. Um, we know uh, all of these things are true, and we know Isaiah 53, which um, was talked about in the sermon this morning, that he would be sacrificed for us. All of those things were, were proven to be true. To put it in the larger context, though, before Emily takes over, um, of what God was saying through all of the Old Testament about what he would do, I think we have to understand the message that everyone, every Hebrew in the Old Testament times would have known that they heard over and over and over and over and over again, which is, when there's sin, there must be death. When there's sin, there must be death. Beginning with the fall, that was true. When there is sin, there must be death. Um, which is why they made the animal sacrifices. Um, most profoundly, um, this was memorialized, of course, through the Passover. And as you know, during the Passover, they would each each family would pass would sacrifice the Paschal lamb, the perfect, flawless lamb, the best lamb they had, and they would do it to remember, of course, when God saved the people of Israel did not kill their, their firstborn sons, but instead the firstborn sons of the Egyptians died and they were freed from Egyptian rule. But in uh, Exodus 12, um, there's the description of exactly what that sa Passover sacrifice should look like. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you from the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. And on this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lentil of the house when they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. When Jesus came, the fulfillment of that promise that God made, that he would come, when, when on Christmas what we remember is the promise that God made, that on his own life he would save us, that he would intervene, flesh incarnate, on this earth to save us, when Jesus came, there was the fulfillment of that message of when there's sin, there must be death. And you'll remember when we, you know, it's, it's at the Frank Limehouse used to always say it's impossible to talk about Christmas without talking about Easter. Um, and, I, and I think that's true. You'll remember, in, if you look at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they all describe that last Passover meal that Jesus had, the Last Supper, in great detail. And they describe in great detail what is there. And what we know from reading that is it was the most bizarre Passover meal ever because everything is there. The bread is there. The wine is there. But there is no lamb. 
There is no lamb because they wouldn't have had access to him and they couldn't get a lamb. And what Jesus is saying when he says, this is my body broken for you, and what his disciples may or may not have understood is there's no lamb on the table because the lamb is sitting at the table. Because Jesus is that lamb. He is the Paschal lamb. When he began his adult ministry, John the Baptist, also there's prophecies, promises that John the Baptist would be the forebearer of Jesus, but John the Baptist immediately looks at Jesus and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So that recurring message, the promise of the Old Testament, the truth that when there's sin there must be death, but the, but the clear promise over and over and over again that all my life I will make it right. I will take your sin and I will make it right on my life. God fulfills that promise and he keeps that promise in Jesus. And what Emily's going to talk about is how you talk about that to your kids and how you make that truth of that kept promise real for your kids and for your family at Christmas. Because what we all know is everyone else in the world is going to let you down, right? Everyone else is going to let you down. Everyone else is not going to fulfill their promise. Your things, what you want to make you happy to fill that void, it's all going to let you down except for this promise, the promise of Jesus. And that's where Emily takes over. While we swap out the recorder, uh, I've got a little video um, that, let's see, okay, um, that's just a little funny illustration of sort of the noise that we um, hear at Christmas. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. 
I love these guys. Um, this is this group called Skit Guys, and um, they have all of these little skits to illustrate various themes of Christianity, and I just think they're a hoot. Um, but to, the takeaway from this video is that there's a lot of noise surrounding Christmas, a lot of secular noise that's fun and there's nothing wrong with, but our job as Christian parents is to distill for our children um through all of this noise, what the actual meaning of Christmas is. That God himself, the creator of the universe, came as a helpless baby to this dirty stable in a small town in Israel to rescue us. And that's that's the message that that we want to explain to our children, that God promised from the dawn of time that we were unable to help ourselves, but that he would come to rescue us. Um, before we get started, um, I want to offer as a disclaimer that um, our oldest is seven. So um, while I'm going to try to speak to children for children of all ages, you know, when I don't know if our methods really work yet because we're parenting with a long view and I don't really know if, you know, if it's going to work. But um, and I've, I've certainly never parented middle or high schoolers. So anyone, please feel free to jump in. Um, we're going to break up the discussion by age group. Um, with preschool, we'll focus on teaching um, with repetition. Um, with older elementary and middle schoolers, we'll talk about telling them the truth. Um, and with high schoolers, we'll talk about teaching them about the sufficiency of God's promise and how that makes them sufficient. Um, and again, with, with preschool and young elementary, I can only share what works for us um, with our children. Um, but every Christmas, I get at least uh, one text or email from a friend who may be trying to introduce um, studying the word to their family. And they'll say, you know, do you have any good Advent devotionals? Um, and I always struggle with how to answer because while we do, and there's nothing wrong with an Advent devotional, and it's a great time to set up a devotion habit, um, one, I feel like it's possibly setting up for failure, and two, if you're only teaching your children about Jesus 25 days out of the year, then it's not going to stick. I liken it to, you know, when, when you teach your child how to tie his shoes, you don't have just like a two-week shoe-tying bonanza once a year, and you don't just show them once or twice or once a week um, and hope that it's going to work. It's a long process of doing it over and over and over, lots of different ways until you find a way that clicks for them. Um, and that's not to say that you shouldn't do an Advent calendar or devotional. We have our Advent calendar, our referee daily fights as to who gets to stick, you know, the next day up. Um, one thing that we've been doing um, this Advent is working through um, the Jesus Calling for Children devotional, and um, I've gone through the Jesus Storybook Bible and picked out stories both from the Old Testament and the New that point to Jesus, um, and that's been really good. As a side note, um, the Jesus Storybook Bible for young children is wonderful in particular to, for helping parents find the right words. Um, you know, they talk about rescue and, the, and, and adventure and things that really resonate with young children. Um, in particular, um, an example of this, my Samuel, my four-year-old, 
is um, the quintessential younger brother. I mean, like, I feel like God wrote the prodigal son for my two sons. Um, but um, all the time after he's been disciplined, he'll say, Mama, I want to be good. But sometimes it's it's hard and it's fun to be bad. Um, and that's the truth, that desire to be bad, that sin, that that tugging at your heart that tells you it's bad, that's the Holy Spirit. And because of Jesus, we can tell him that we're sorry. And because of Jesus, we don't have to take the punishment for our sins. Um, you can hear, like, these are words that they can understand, even though they're really big themes. Um, don't be afraid of, of sharing those themes with your children. Um, you have to tell them over and over and over again with the gospel. That's how it becomes a part of their reality. Um one of the scriptures that I wanted to point to was Joshua 1.8. The book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Um, Psalm 119 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 143.5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. So what I take from that is we need to be reminding our children daily of who God is and what he promises us. Um, and let me say that... I, I freely admit that I'm the biggest hypocrite among you, and my personal devotion life does not bear well to examination. Um, but what makes God real to our children is that we're always talking about him, not just saying grace, but that we talk about him when the day is beautiful or when we're scared or when we've had to have discipline, whatever, as if God is an invisible member of our family, which, thanks be to God, he is. Um some other good suggestions we have a lot of scripture cds that we listen to in the car the seeds family worship is wonderful the ask me who um, catechism set to music is wonderful um but we you know and we read those bible stories together and we pray together um and for us having just the sense of it, it being a constant in our life has worked better than this this big where we're going to have family worship time every night and that works for some families but that's not been the reality at the price house um the other thing that i would encourage um is to be mindful of opportunities as they arise not just to have time carved out that you're going to talk about jesus but know that you know with children they don't always operate on your schedule um, Samuel had this stretch where he did not want to go to school and every day was just like a struggle from the time we got up to the time we got out the door and I would be so exasperated by the time we got in the car. But one of the things that we started doing on the way was talking about the armor of God. And it was a game most of the time, you know, like, oh, what color is your shield and what color is your sword? But there was scriptural grounding in that about God promises that he will be with us when he's scared and he gives us the you know belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness the shield of faith this is all in Ephesians 6 um, and how God promises that he'll never leave us um, but it was definitely more of a repetition a lesson of repetition than thoroughness um, but it makes an impression on their little hearts. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had to take Samuel, I had to take Samuel to the emergency room at like four o'clock in the morning. And I'm just a train wreck and I'm praying, but I haven't thought to pray with the baby. <laughs> and he from the back seat and he's like in so much pain and he, his little voice pipes up and he says, Mama, I think we need to put on the armor of God. And I was already emotional, but I just like started crying because I was like, thank you, Lord, that, that you know, somehow this, 
truth has been imprinted on his little heart, and he knows to cry out to God when he's afraid. Um, so for little children to believe that God keeps his promises, they need to know what those promises are. And Advent is a wonderful time to introduce to our children the notion that we are broken sinners and that without God, without Jesus, we cannot hope to be with him, that we cannot be good on our own. Um, and that the, from the first of creation, God promised that he would rescue us. Um, and so if we just reiterate that over and over and over, then God's truth becomes a part of the reality. Um, with older elementary and middle school children, the theme I want to talk about is truth. Um, and that really speaks to what this video showed that there's just so much noise and so much stuff and and it's fun right but we have to distill for them what the truth is um, to remind them daily that um, who God is in his justice and mercy and who we are as sinners in need of a savior um, the gospel coalition published an essay by Paul Tripp earlier this month and the premise of the article was the war um, for our children's hearts that Advent poses. Um, and I felt that really particularly resonated with children in this age range because um, I feel like the more they're out in the world, the more the world and its lies really start to weigh in. Um, Tripp writes, The Advent season is upon us. It should be a gloriously peaceful time of remembering God's ultimate response to his lost and rebellious image bearers. Um, that response wasn't to condemn, but to give the ultimate gift of grace in the person of his son. But instead of a peaceful season, Advent has devolved into a spiritual war with your family at the center. And he says that he has no problem with the secular traditions of Christmas, but he is concerned because there is a war for which story will define our children's beliefs about who they are, what they need, and what their lives are about. I'll say that again. Who they are what they need, and what their lives are about. Um, every human being lives searching for some meaning of a defining story. Um, and the Advent season has become a battle between two stories. One, the seductive, you need all the toys and all the things and all the activities. And one is really deeply humbling. You are broken and in need of salvation. Um, but it's the that's the story that everyone everywhere needs. Um, let's see. Um, I want to I want to leave time for questions. Um, in every way, your children will hear through the Advent season um, this dangerous lie that puts them at the center of the universe, um, and it calls them to find comfort where they can't find comfort to find to place their hope in things that won't deliver. Um, and at this age, they're really figuring out that things won't satisfy. Um, and I encourage you with, with children this age to really press into that and name that. Um, last Christmas, we had a couple of days, um, like the week after Christmas when all the excitement had died down, that our seven-year-old was just so bad. I mean, just like so bad. And I could not figure out what was going on with him. And after, you know, like these rounds of, you know, discipline and reconciliation and whatever, he just burst into tears and, and he, um, was just, he said the words he used were, I'm so bored and I'm so sad. And he couldn't really name it, but I was like, yeah, buddy, like that's, 
that's how the world feels after Christmas because we did all this stuff and we got all this stuff and it doesn't really satisfy. But let me tell you what does. You know, um, and uh, back to Paul Tripp's essay, he relays the true Advent story is this. It's humbling. It's unattractive. It's this sad story about a world broken by sin, populated by self-centered rebels who are willing participants in their own self-destruction. It's about beings created to live for God, but who in every way live for themselves. The story is about the dethroning of the creator and the enthroning of his creation. It's about conditions so desperate that God did the unthinkable, sending his son to be the sacrificial lamb for our redemption. Um, it's the news that God came on this glorious mission of grace to live and die and rise in our place. And when we understand that that's our only hope, um, then we can begin to understand Christmas. Um, and I just encourage you with children in that age to really name that truth and to name and press into that so that they can are, have an ability to distill from the excitement of Christmas what really matters. Um, with high school um, age children, and, and this is where I'm the thinnest because I really haven't gotten here yet, um, but I want to talk about sufficiency, the idea that God's promises are sufficient to satisfy the longing in our hearts and that because of Jesus, we ourselves are sufficient to stand before God. Um, I taught high school girls um, for, for several years, um, which is pretty much the extent of my relating to children of this age. Uh, but I can tell you what I really felt called to tell them if they didn't hear anything else from me was um, that the creator of the universe, the most perfect and holy God, lovingly created them individually and tenderly loved them, loves them personally. Yes, humankind is on the hook for its millennia of wrongs, but God also knows the individual sins in your own heart, and he came to rescue you personally. Um, one of the verses that I talk about a lot with our children, mainly because it's one that spoke into my heart um, when I was first beginning to understand what Jesus had done for me, um, uh, was Isaiah 43, which is a chapter that describes how God himself will be a savior for his people. Um, the whole chapter is amazing, and I commend it to you. Um, but the verse I reflect upon the most with my children is, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then it goes on down. I think it's like verse 8 that says, Because you were precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Um, that's so compelling. And for high school students, I feel like the noise at Christmas must just be deafening what everyone has and does where everyone's going who's posting on instagram what everyone got what their trip you know what trip they got to take um and i mean that's true for me too um and i feel like you know without sounding like an old woman that social media really just raises that sort of cacophony of noise to a crescendo that's just really got to be hard for you know a 15 16 year old to unpack um so how do we speak into that how do we remind our older children that God covenanted with us that the suffering and hurt of this world um, and that the suffering and hurt of this world feels this way because our heart was created um, for something else? Um, the principles of repetition and speaking truth still apply, but I would also especially emphasize that in God's eyes, because of Jesus, they are enough. They are accepted. Indeed, they are so precious and beloved by their heavenly Father 
that he placed himself in the lowliest of places and suffered an undignified and wretched death just to come and save them. And that's sufficient. Um, Does that make feeling lonely or left out or out of place heartless? No, and it's okay to feel that way. We hurt with and for our children when the world and sin hurts them, just like Jesus wept with wept with Lazarus's family, um, even though he knew that ultimately it would all be made right. Um, but again and again, um, in Advent and all the rest of the year, um, in every way you can think of, I would offer your children the comfortable words that God gave us. The saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Um, I want to leave time for questions or thoughts um, for Oscar or I. Anybody? One thing I'll, I'll say, which goes into what, what Oscar was, was talking about, which I think I've, I've always always liked when we talk about the Passover. And I heard it from Dean Pearson for the first time. Is that when when Isaiah or when when he when he was going up there to he was supposed to kill his his son, that's the same mountain that Jesus like that's that's the Calvary where Jesus went up you know to the cross and mm-hmm. ultimately was the lamb that was that was killed. Mm-hmm. so true and it's so tempting at least for me to think oh I really don't want to have this talk right now or I you know I'm really not prepared to do this and but yet you know when they're there and you're there and they're asking and they want to listen to you like I'm starting to learn that you know those opportunities are fewer you know get to be fewer and fewer and when you can get the first crack at at you know telling them what really matters in this world um, that that's that's something precious to not lose sight of. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of scares 
scared, you know, I'm trying to, you know, they got me I'm telling you something, but I ain't never get really close to God. Mm -hmm. But when I start hearing you talking, it makes me start wondering, am I running from shame or am I running from guilt? Mm -hmm. That's that been puzzling. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that um, is that if we look kind of at the Old Testament is it's 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 easy when we to, it's easy to say well Jesus just came so that we could go to heaven and that's not that's that's only half the story Jesus came to give us Himself and to cover all of it to cover all the shame all the guilt all the ways that since sin first came into this sorry, rotten, fallen world, have been set wrong. And for everybody that's different, um, and you know, for the things in my life about which I have shame or guilt, Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice for that too. I mean, the lambs were symbolic of, of a sacrifice that we made, and the blood covers all of it, I think. I know. I don't always feel, but I know. Um, <coughs> You want to close us in prayer, Emily? Yeah. Lord God, um, we come to you, and um, the thing that can't leave my mind is just how how grateful we are, how undeserving we are, broken sinners that we are, of of what you did for us, um, and yet you freely offered your son. You created that plan from the dawn of time and you sent him to rescue us um, so that on this earth and in the next, we could be with you, that we could have relationship with you, the creator of the universe. What a marvelous truth that is, Lord. Um, You are the God that keeps your promises. Um, Lord, we just come before you and we are grateful for the children um, that are in our orbit, whether our own or others. Um, Lord, and we just pray that you would give us the words and the wisdom and the patience and the courage to share with them over and over um, the truth that, um, that you keep your promises, that you promise to rescue us, and that promise is sufficient to cover everything else in this world. Um, go be with us as we go about our weeks and um, in the days uh, leading up to Christmas. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 